Okay, let's grab your Bibles. We're going to go to Colossians. You're going to Colossians. We'll be in chapter 1. Not finished with that yet. I'm not necessarily taking my time. I'm just preaching in context. This is an interesting book. I think it's been more for me than maybe anything else. And hopefully this morning I, I do it some justice. In the mornings lately, I've been like repeating a lyric over and over. And it's a lyric that describes what uh, Jesus spoke of in Luke 12. Uh, you don't have to turn there. I want you at Colossians. But he said, uh, look at the lilies and how they grow. They don't work. They don't make uh, their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Now, the lyric that I've been kind of uh, singing in my head, and I just sing, it's one verse, really. The whole song is one verse, and it just goes over and over. And the lyric is, look at the way the flowers bloom for you. They want to show you their beauty, Lord. Running waters dance while you and I romance, and unto you be all the glory. And I've been like singing that all uh, week. Uh, every morning I get up and I go outside and I look at uh, the flowers right now. And we've kind of lost all our blue bonnets in the back. So we just have weeds now. But out in the front where there hadn't been any mowing, there's a lot of like sunflowers and I don't know what the maroon ones are, but when you put maroon with yellow, that thing works. I'm just saying, that's a color palette that is beautiful. And, uh, and so I've, we've had a bunch of those out there in, in spots where they're just clustered up. And I, and I look at that and just seeing the, the prettiness of it all and, and just have, have been something I've been praying and meditating over um, t- literally like every day. And I've been moved by the simplicity of it. Um, I moved by like the graciousness of, of God about how something that's so simple can bring so much praise, you know, and there are times where I think, uh, and as the preacher, uh, uh, maybe the pressure of always wanting something more from God, God, I just want this rhema word, I just want this deep thought, I just want this, you know, and, and there are times where simple truth is, is such the best truth, and, and, um, and, and there's also a piece of me that just loves the fact that flowers do nothing, they do nothing. Yeah, they can pollinate to other flowers, and it helps with bees and all those kind of things like that. But technically, I can't eat them. They bring nothing for me. I mean, like, like I, I, they just do nothing. They just sit there and be flowers, and God thinks they're gorgeous. God thinks they're prettier than Solomon and all the wealth and money could buy him as far as clothing could be. And, they, and what's neat is they just are. They have no purpose other than to just be a flower. Isn't that interesting? So I was moved a lot by just how simple something can bring praise to God and how the Lord is honored by their beauty, right? I mean, that's the whole idea of what Jesus is trying to say. He's honored by their beauty. He, he, and really, and the interesting thing to me is their beauty is just a reflection of his greatness, Right? It's a reflection of his power. I mean, he's the creator, right? It's a reflection of his own, uh, his own beauty. And I could go on and on, but uh, I, I, I don't think it's coincidence that I think it led me into where we're going today with Colossians. And, uh, and so in, in our text today, we're going to be around verse 15. Paul is moving, um, again, from telling the Colossians how impressed he is by their loving grace towards others into, you know, an encouraging message on the greatness of God. It's a very simple message, what he's going to tell them. But I think there are some things that we can learn from this and take from this. And I want us to see it from a historical value. And I want us to see it, uh, again, and I'd be a bad preacher if I didn't somehow figure out how to apply this to us or what do we glean from it, you know, what do we take from it as we walk by. But, uh, I think there are some things to really ask ourselves that are simple things that we often take for granted. And, and, and one of those is just the simplicity of being a Christian. We're so purpose-driven. We're so like, well, I have to have a purpose. I have to do this. Sometimes being, according to Jesus, is enough. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that far out, right? 
A flower, you know how it testifies that it's a flower? It blooms. That's it. Everybody sees it. When it blooms, it does what God has created it to do. Everybody sees what it is and adorns it for what it is, right? It, it, it allows it to just be. Sometimes I think or I believe that if sometimes if we'll just be what God has called us to be, purpose and all those things will take care of itself. So let's look at uh, chapter 1, Colossians uh, 15 through 20. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is the first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Father, um, Jesus, this morning, uh, God, we invite you. Lord, we know you're already here, Lord, but Lord, just in our own soul, in our own heart, in our own uh, mind right now, we invite you in, Lord, to take your life-breathing, giving word and allow it to illuminate our path, Lord. Lord, let our ears be open and our eyes be able to see that which you want to put on display. Show us the flower of this passage, God. Reveal to us its beauty that we may gaze upon it and give you glory, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the, the language in this text has changed from last week. Right? Last week we saw Paul appeal to you know, he appealed to their kindred likeness, right? We talked about how this was a, a letter to correct, but he's trying to, he was trying to appeal to them first. He was trying to tell them, listen, this is what you do well, so this is what we have in common. And so he was trying to appeal to that, right? He expressed his gratefulness towards how they treated others and how he could see the power of God or the power of the gospel in their love for each other, which is, which is awesome. But here in this set of scriptures, Paul gives them more kind of, of a lesson, really, a, a, a solid doctrine or a theological doctrine on how to view God. It just goes from one immediately into the next. And in its simplicity, Paul is just trying to explain that God and Jesus are one and the same. God and Jesus are one and the same. It's like he's answering a question that hasn't been asked. Like, like the question of who is God and what does he look like? Paul says he looks like Jesus. That's what he looks like. Right? In the person of Jesus, we see the image of God. Right? When Jesus reached down and he touches the leper, we see the compassion of God. When Jesus forgives the woman caught in adultery, we see the grace of God. When Jesus healed the blind man, we see the power of God. Right? When Jesus is tortured for our sins, right, we see the sacrifice of God. When Jesus is resurrected from the grave, we see the glory of God. In Jesus, we see God. However, Paul pushes like this envelope a lot further. He doesn't just stop and say that Jesus is the reflection of God. Paul is saying that Jesus is God in the flesh, capable of existing both in heaven and on earth. And listen, that's not new theology. Not teaching anything that's like, this is basic 101 stuff, right? John's gospel account, it bears the same truth. It's not 
foreign here. John 1, uh, many of you know these first few scriptures. If you've read the Gospels a lot, the first five scriptures in John 1 say that in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. John is talking about Jesus, right? John believes this to be true, uh, not because of some spiritual wisdom within him, like, hey, that's a good sermon, preacher, great theology you got from just reading and kind of compiling your thoughts together. No, uh, it's because in chapter 8, if you follow the gospel of John, in chapter 8, verse 48, Jesus, out of his own mouth, said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born... I am. It is the only place that is said in all the Gospels where it records Jesus saying, I existed before Abraham. He is speaking as God. Both John and Paul, they shared the same view of the supreme divinity of Christ, right? He always has been and will always be. Listen, I'm going somewhere with this, and I know this is stuff that seems remedial, but you, you just hang on, right? He is both king of heaven and he's king of earth. He is both king of life and he's king of death. He reigns over all that he has created and he has created everything, right? Both John and Paul's view of God in Christ is vast, right? Which begs the question, and it may be what Paul is alluding to really in this text. Hear me. How big how wide, how deep, how great is your God? Not my God. How big is your God? I'm not saying that from a theological standpoint. You can quote back to me everything I just said. But how big do you think God is? One thing is for sure, and let me tell you why we bring this up and why I think Paul does too. Your faith is only as big as your view of God. Well, my circumstances are so hard. We're struggling in this. We're, we're trying to get through this. Or, or, man, we're so worried about this. Well, how big is your God? Is your God able? Does he not see you? By the way, this is not an uncommon thing to even ask these kind of questions. In, book of, in the book of Kings where Elisha is tested, the, you know, uh, one of the first things that when any time starts to mock God is when God doesn't show up right away, people start mocking God. And listen, we're not far from that as Christians even sometimes. Well, God's just going to let me sit this one through. It's just how it's going to be. I don't, have you talked to God about it? Is that what God said? How big is your God? All right? Paul's view of God is described, I mean, we just heard it, as supreme creator. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's redeemer. He's a supreme authoritarian over everything, right? This view of God allows Paul to put his faith in God and, and can do, he, a God that can do all things and can be in all places, in all situations, right? And this is greatly reflected in both Paul, Paul and John's life and how they lived, right? John's faith carried him to Pentecost. And he was used by God to help birth the beginning of the church during immense persecution. Hey, John, I'm sending you to jail. Done. God can get me out of this. And he does. Right? Paul's faith carried him across the world, creating churches everywhere and even bringing the gospels to the Gentiles. We see in both their lives. All kinds of miracles and signs and wonders, everything that they experienced. They, it's, it's unbelievable, right? This view of God allowed them to live their life with boldness towards the gospel openly. Openly. They were unashamed, as Paul's words, unashamed of the gospel. They became fearless preachers and prophets. Fearless. Again, how big is your God? How big is he? And it's, again, I know it seems remedial, but listen, man, how you live your life reveals the answer to that question. How you live your life. I can't tell you how many people that I see struggle even with, with tithing. And me, my first probably four or five years, I struggled hard with tithing. Now I'm too scared not to tithe. 
once you start, everybody understands that feeling. If you've been there, you know already. It's like once you start, you're like, oh, man, I don't know how we're going to make it. I give 10% to God. Man, we ain't going to have nothing. But it's funny how it all works out. And and I can't tell you that, that there aren't times that we stress and stuff. But I, what I can tell you is after years of tithing now, we're scared not to tithe because we've seen God do so much once we started. Once we started saying we were going to put our finances on the feet of the altar, that our finances weren't greater than God. We were going to trust God with our money. That's what you're saying with tithing. You're going to trust God with your money. That's when we started seeing God do some things in our life that was unreal. But I, I'm going to tell you one thing that every person who tithes experienced, the devil. Because <laughs> it's going to come at you, and it's going to try to blindside you, and there's going to give you every reason under the sun never to do it. Never to do it. But that's, this is the battle. This is the battle. What? How big is your God? Is he bigger than Satan? Can he accomplish more? Is he not, is he not uh, able to do far more and exceeding greater than anything the devil can do? I mean, how big is your God? You, you think it doesn't matter, but this is, this is a question that gets asked all the time. Really, all the time in your subconscious. Every time you doubt, how big is your God? That's what's being said to you. Through whether spiritual demonic forces, whatever you want to call it, whether it's just your seeds of doubt that are in your brain. But how big is your God? Wondering if you're going to get a promotion, wondering if, if this is going to be a change in your job, wondering if this is going to be a change in your life, is what happening with your families, the, 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 the most, listen, how big is your God? What can he do? What can he do? What is God's reputation? Do you know it? And if you don't, you should. You should read it. How big is your God? Another thing, have we examined our life according to this? It's a valid question. If, if the view of how big our God is is related directly to our faith, then have you examined your faith? Maybe that's where the struggle is. You, your low view of God causes you to have very remedial faith. You don't have very much faith. You, it's very small, right? But the, the, the thing is, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, self-examination is a discipline of every disciple. It's not my words either. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul told the Corinthians this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. He says, test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Aren't we just talking about that with the Colossians? He's trying to explain Jesus Christ is in God. God is, listen, Christ is in you. Listen, unless you fail to meet the test, right? What test, right? This test of the question, how big is your God? How big is it? Do you believe? And if you believe, can you stand on it? Are you able to, right? And, and to me, I see this as Paul's intention toward the Colossians because I'm telling you, this is not a letter that he sends like, hey, I heard you're doing awesome. Just want to cheerlead you. It's not like that. This is a reprimand a little bit, but he's trying to be nice and he's trying to teach and educate and do it in a way that is called loving, correcting through love. He's hinting away at it, right? It's, it's all begging self-examination. Listen, and if we stopped here and we didn't read anything else, you'd kind of be confused if this this all the point you're trying to make. But let's finish the, the text right here because there's more to this, right? He didn't just stop here. He gives them this like, it's almost like a theological doctrine. And, and, and it'll kind of be written in your Bible in a way where it looks like it's almost a theological doctrine, like he's quoting a poem or something. Uh, but look at verse 21 in Colossians. Yeah, if we're not careful, we can kind of preach this out of context, which is the reason why we have to finish the Scripture out right here where this is still talking. In verse 21, he says this, This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions, yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed of, as God's servant to proclaim it. So finally, we arrive at Paul's preaching point, right? He gives them this dose of truth, right? God is omnipotent. God is great. God is awesome. He gives them this point of truth, and he goes, this is why I'm saying it right. He declares to them that Jesus is the example of how God's visible image can rest inside of a man, 
and God lived in Christ, and through Christ, everything uh, was reconciled back to himself. And he, here's what he's trying to get at. This allows us the same opportunity that we can now have Christ live in us. That's why the self-examination in 2 Corinthians applies to us, because don't you know that Christ lives in you? Christ lives in you. Through Christ in us, now, because Christ is in us and he can do all things, what can we do? All things, just as Jesus did. This, however, it's only as powerful as your view of God. If you don't view him to be powerful, then you you're going to act that way. For Paul, God is big. He's giant. He's deep. He's wide, right? The question pointed towards these young disciples, the Colossians, is a simple one. What do you believe? What are you believing? What have you been told about God? Why do you, why, wh- wh- where's your faith? How, how big is God in your eyes? How big is God in your heart, right? It's, a, it's being asked to you every day, every day. Every day. Paul said this gospel includes you. It's an inclusive gospel. You who were once far from God are included. You who were once enemies of God are included. You were who once doubters. You who were, who were once faithless. But now you've been reconciled. But now you've been bought. But now you have been redeemed. But now as God lived in Christ, now he lives in you. So walk in it. That's what he's saying powerful look at what christ was able to do why why was christ able to do those things because god lived in christ right and we saw god through jesus now the world needs to see who they need to see god they see him in jesus so what do we need to do we have to bear the image of jesus so that the world can see it jesus is not weak in faith (laughs) he is not weak in faith however there's a but. I hate those things, right? But Paul lists two things that keep us from living in the fullness of Christ. The first thing he reveals is that we must continue to believe this truth. What truth? The truth that God is big, that he's giant, that he's wide, that he's deep, that he's vast, that he's pure, that he's holy, that he's omnipotent and omnipresent, right? We have to see God as he really is have to right this correct view of God is what's going to stir our faith to see hear act talk and walk like Jesus in this way the world will witness the image of the invisible God just like it saw the father in Jesus see it in you see it in you to do this requires an active relationship with God Make no mistake about it. It's all, we're always going to come back to this. Number one thing a disciple must do. Anybody think of it? The number one thing a disciple must do. Number one. Can't, if you're not this, you're probably not a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Because there's no way you can maintain a relationship without it. Married people understand this. Number one thing in marriage, I'm going to tell you right now, is Communication. If you do not talk to your spouse and continue to talk about all things, dumb things, good things, bad things, everything, you are not going to have a relationship, period, period. There's nothing. Listen, majority of all relationships are built on communication. Where communication fails, relationships fail, period. You know, they'll say, well, divorce, a lot of times divorce is about finances. Uh-huh, because nobody wants to talk to each other. Otherwise, you talk each other through it. I never understand how finances should drive. Like, when finance is hard, that should drive you closer together because all you got is each other. You're both poor. That's what I always wonder. Like, oh, finances are so bad, and this just stressed them out that they end up divorced. Like, man, they might have not been friends in the first place. They sound like they were work buddies living together. I'm just saying. I know it's not as easy as that or as simple as that, and I can make it out to be, but I do know this. If you're not communicating, how are you ever, how are you ever together? You have to talk. You have to get each other, right? So number one thing, you have to have a prayer life. You have to. If you're not praying, you're struggling to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If you're not setting aside time every day, you are struggling to be a follower of Jesus Christ. 
Why? Because when you spend more time, married people know this too, when you spend more time with each other, you start to act like each other. You start to see the influences of each other in you. You know, you start to laugh at the dumb things your spouse laughs at that you thought were dumb 20 years ago. But now you know it makes them laugh, so you think it's funny when you see it now. Right? You, you become more like each other, right? You start to share traits. Listen, that's a proven fact. We've talked about it in here before that, that uh, um, they, they've talked about how there's a science where, like, the longer you're together, the more you start looking like each other. Isn't that weird, right? Picture that one, but that's what they say. Your smiles start to match up. The way you do your eyes all start to match up because you imitate one another because you see each other all the time. The more you hang around with Jesus and talk with Jesus, you start talking like Jesus and looking like Jesus. It's scriptural. Remember in the Bible where the disciples are in trouble? John, he's birthing the church, believing God's a big God. He goes out there. He's in trouble. The Pharisees are coming over him. They've thrown him and Peter in jail, and they come up and are talking to him, and they, and they look like, man, these guys are ignorant, but they do sound like Jesus, though. Like, how are these ignorant guys? We know them to be just dumb fishermen. Like, this other guy's like a zealot, been following John the Baptist around forever. I don't, we don't even know what John does, you know. John's like a, a guy who's like a church groupie, I mean, as far as we know. Like, he's hanging around John the Baptist. He leaves John the Baptist for Jesus. There's no time where we see John have a job, right? He's just following. And then you have Peter who's, like, stopped his whole life. By the way, Peter has a wife. And kids who stops his whole life for Jesus, right? And so these are not most educated guys, and yet the, the educated guys go, man, these guys sound just like Jesus. They just talk just like him. They're just like repeating his words all the time. Praise God. That's the point, right? When we hang around Jesus, that we talk like Jesus, that we act like Jesus. Why do you think the people held them in such high regard? Because fishing is an awesome thing, and Peter was just so awesome? No, Peter's horrible example of how to be sometimes but why why was he so respected just because he walked with Jesus no it's because he came out talking and acting like Jesus too and that the power of Jesus was inside him and they witnessed that as well and the thing is that was not an exclusive thing Paul said what this includes you 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 have the ability to walk just like Peter to be just like John, to be just like Paul, just like Elijah and Elijah, right? You have the ability to. How big is your God? How much do you believe? How much time are you spending with him, right? They'll see it in you, right? You have to have an active relationship, right? Listen, we, we, we get this. You know, another example is uh, if you've got kids, you already know this, man. Kids are taught by this by their parents. And when we grow up, we teach our kids. We're always telling our children to be careful who they hang around. Why? Why? If they're not influenced by other people, why should you be careful who you hang around? Because you absolutely are. You hang around a bunch of knuckleheads, you're a knucklehead too. That's just how it is. I mean, you know, that's, that's just the way it goes, right? You have to be careful who you hang around. I, I usually tell people, even as a youth pastor, you say, I can tell how you are just by looking at your friends. And you're like, well, I'm not like them. But you hang around them, you are like them. We don't go hang around people we're not like. We hang around like-minded people. Period. Period. We do. So it's easy to say if we're praying and hanging around Jesus, we're more apt to become like Jesus and share in his traits and his manners. You have to have an active relationship. Prayer just might be the greatest weapon of the Christian faith. It changes the world by changing you. We are so ready for the world to change, and we want this outward change to happen. It will never happen until you get it out of your skull that it's going to take the world changing and not you. That, that's what has to shift. You know how I, I, this is the whole idea of the, the advance the gospel by returning to the Lord. When we return to the Lord, we are the ones that change. When we change and we become the one who spends so much time with Jesus like Moses did in the tent, we begin to shine in such a way that people like Joshua just want to hang outside. They want to hang outside your life. They want to hang outside your work. They want to hang outside your friends. They, they want to be there all the time because they want to see what made you you. What makes you you? And whatever that is, that's what I want. And then you tell them the same thing, you know, we always tell them, right? It's not me, bro. 
I just want to spend time with Jesus. I just love Jesus. This is, this is where my heart's at. I, I, love, I just want what Jesus wants. I want to see the world change, but I want what Jesus wants. And I don't think I can change the world. What I think can change the world is Jesus. And what I know is that I need to continue to spend more time with Jesus because if I spend more time with Jesus, then that's what people will see. I can't have them seeing me. That'll be a failure. They need to see Jesus, not me, not Pastor Jim even. They need to see Jesus. Pastor Jim's not going to say this community one ounce. Jesus is. Jesus is. Prayer changes the world by changing, changing you. The next thing that Paul says is the Colossians must do is that we, and, and we must do is to stand firmly now in this truth. The same truth that brings about the inward revelation of God in us is something we have to hold on dearly to. It is the catalyst for world change. Right? There may be times we're able to advance this truth, but in order, uh, if the order is to stand firm, you know what that means? Retreat is not an option. I may not be able to go forward. I may be ought to take ground, but by gosh, I ain't giving it up. That's what he's saying. I will stand firm. This is where I love the old dog soldier uh, 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 analogy. The dog soldier, the Cheyenne dog soldier, uh, awesome a warrior who was kind of this rebel outcast of Cheyenne warriors that were sick and tired of being pushed around by the the white settlers of their time. And so the dog soldier was kind of born out of this where they would take this leather uh, belt that had this long uh, uh, piece to it and they took a stake in the ground and they tied off the leather to the stake with their spear and they said, I'm not moving one more inch. I don't care how much y'all keep pushing us. I'm not going one more inch. It's going to cost somebody something if I have to go. Right? At some point, we must stand firm. We must stand firm. We can never retreat from this truth that the God of the universe, the creator of all, lives in me. He lives in me and he lives in you. To quote, to quote another great lyric in the spirit of Easter. In the spirit of Easter, it's an, old, it's an older hill songs. The same power that conquered the grave lives in me. The same power that resurrected Jesus, that rent the veil in the temple, that declared salvation to mankind, that bought with the purchase of blood all those who are in heaven today, who John says are singing glory and glory to the Lord, right? lives in me, lives in me. This is truth. And I have to stand firm on this and never surrender this truth at all. Lastly, there's a warning. It's a small one, but there's some huge implications as to the consequences. Paul says, don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. Don't drift away. And this isn't unheard of, right? We're all capable of getting so caught up with the world and the things of the world that we can fall into a lull in our faith, right? We miss church, which is really a way of us just, stay, you know, church is really a way of us just staying motivated in our faith by the exercise of being around what? Like-minded and like-hearted individuals that help encourage us to stay strong, to stand the faith, to not retreat, to not step back, but to keep going and believe and believe and believe, Right? We get lazy, we stop reading our Bibles, we get lazy and we stop praying and we're too tired or we're too busy or we're too angry at God or we're mad at ourselves and there are a thousand other reasons, but this is a warning that to drift away is to struggle in your day-to-day -day life. To drift away uh, from this is to not only reject the gift of abundant life for you, but also for the world. And why? Because God has decided to reveal himself to the world through you. Through you. And what view are you showing them? What side of that are you showing them when you're too tired or you're too mad or you're too lazy or too whatever? Are you showing them the God who is the creator of all? Or are you showing them a God that's more like us, unreliable, faithless? I wonder sometimes the God we showed to, like, you know, as a parent, I wonder sometimes the God I've shown to my kids. Hopefully I've shown the God of forgiveness. Listen, I think everybody struggles. I've had my years where I've struggled, that's for sure. 
but I try to show the God of forgiveness, the God of grace, the God of love, right? Even when I failed and maybe I didn't go to church for a season or maybe I just didn't pray for a season. You know what I would always do? I believe that God was the God of no condemnation and I would just get back up on that horse. I never have prayed ever and ever heard God say, I'm ashamed of you, ever. Matter of fact, when I was the most ashamed and most guilt-ridden for my lack thereof of faith, of uh, being in church or, or helping people or whatever, I always heard God say, I love you, which often was the thing that broke me to my knees. Like, why are you saying, you know, like, I want you to just yell at me, right? Anybody, I'm the only one, have that kind of thought, right? Like, you just want God, just yell at me, God, you totally deserve it. God's like, why should I, right? You know, one thing my boss said the other day, and I think it's so great, I wish I, I thought of it, and I'm going to steal it, uh, but he's, he did say it. I was asking him, you know, we're so graceful at, at, at our work about letting people have second, third, fourth, fifth, hundred million chances, and it drives me nuts at times because I feel like at some point, discipline is going to have to step in, but a lot of these people are adults. It's not like we got kids where that's really a teachable thing and and my boss said well you know he goes here's why I err on grace it's a great way to say that he goes he goes my hope and my my first line of offense or defense whatever you want to call it he goes is that grace will change them before discipline and I thought man that's I'm a horrible pastor I was like golly that's so good my hope and my, my heart wants to say grace. Well, if I give you grace, grace is more powerful than me being uh, uh, angry or coming down on you or being stern, maybe too stern at times or because of the situation. It's powerful. It's so powerful. Uh, I, amen. Amen. Listen, I think God is like that. I think that's what God's doing, right? That's why I want God to yell at me. Oh, God, I'm in trouble. I put myself in timeout, God, right? I'm giving my own lashes, you know? God's like, no, there's no condemnation in me. Just come back. Come back. Let's start again. Let's start again. Like I've said many a time here, you've heard me say it over and over, the Christian faith is really more about how many times you get back up. <laughs> Everybody falls, man, all your life. But it's how many times will you get back up and just keep going? Just keep going, right? Let me also share with you a geographical truth and one that we will eventually see in the next few weeks, uh, the influence towards the Colossians. The Colossians are roughly around, you know, 10 miles or so from the Laodiceans. Now, some of you might not uh, uh, catch that, but it is a name that's familiar. Some of you probably know that name, the Laodiceans. Uh, it, you should be, uh, it, it, you would remember it from the book of Revelations. Both the Colossians and the, the Laodiceans are people with immense wealth. So there's a struggle there about what they believe about God or how big God is. Is he bigger than them? Because they don't need God that much. They're doing pretty well, right? <clears throat> so while the Colossians are, are really, Paul's kind of patting them on the back saying, hey, man, you're more in line with the gospel. The Laodiceans <clears throat> are struggling to see their need for God because of their wealth. Their view of God was skewed. They saw God they didn't think they needed. It had turned from them. They'd, they'd kind of drifted from the truth of the gospel, which is why they end up in the book of Revelation. They now stand as a stark reminder of who not to be in the Bible, of who not to be. And this is the warning. going. This is like the grace of God calling out to the Colossian church. I'm trying to course correct you now. I'm course correcting you right now. It's believed that this letter possibly went out to the Laodicean church so that it was fair that they had a warning. You're going to see that as we keep pushing on. I mean, talk about how profitable the Laodiceans, one of the stories from history, not necessarily from our Bible, but from history, is that the Laodiceans were so wealthy that when they had a, a major uh, a dramatic uh, weather event happen there and a lot of things were destroyed, Rome wanted to send a whole lot of money and help out and some things like that, and they rejected it. It's like, no, nah, we got this bill. They're like, no, nah, we got this. We can totally afford to fix this whole city up. That's crazy. Right? But they're a stark reminder now. How big is your God? What does your life look like in response to that question? Can I see that in your life? 
Can people see it? Because listen, it doesn't matter even if I see it, man. Can other people see it? Can your friends see it? Because God puts you around the people that you're supposed to minister to, period. People, God puts you there. Wherever you're at, God puts you there for around those people so that you could be Jesus to them, right? And it's important. They will witness the visible image of the invisible God through you. That's what Paul's saying this morning. And we have to continue to believe in this great truth. And when we can't advance it, we better stand on it. There are times where we feel like we're not making ground at all, but that don't mean anything. That don't mean we get to retreat. No, we stand firmly in what we believe. The one thing we must be on guard of is this. We must watch each other closely that we don't drift away. This is when the enemy will come to shame you. He comes to guilt you, right? You know this, this, this song and dance, right? Wants to make sure that you never feel like you have a welcome back, but that's, just, that's the devil, right? But this morning, I'm going to tell you, I've come to fight. I've come to put the devil on notice. I've come to reach out and grab those who are guilt-ridden and shame, and I'm saying no more. I'm going to tell you that. You know, I haven't chased anybody in ministry ever, but it might start happening. It might start happening, man, because I'm tired of the devil, and I'm tired of spiritual demons and spiritual darkness, and I'm tired of, uh, uh, of just uh, the, 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 all the stuff that you have to deal with when it comes to the enemy. Doubt and shame and guilt and all his other little measly tools, right? When there's nowhere God says any of those things about you. God's given us this truth this morning. I don't want to get ready for worship here, but God's given us this truth this morning as a great, like, reminder. Like, this is like one of those reminders. Like, we come into this, and, and we look at how, how, how big God is and how vast God is, and it's a reminder. Like, God is telling you this morning, literally telling you this morning, look at me. Look at me. When we begin to do worship, I challenge you to close your eyes and look to the Lord. How big is God? And then to believe, I challenge you to believe that he is who he says he is, that he is big, he is giant, he is huge, he is vast, he is deep, he is wide, he is all of those things. He can do all things because he created all things. He can, he can win in your circumstances, whatever your circumstances are. He can answer the prayer that you've been asking for right now. He can answer it just like that. He can say yes or he can say no. And if he says no, you know why? It's because he's got a better way. There's an old song that says, I thank God for unanswered prayers. Praise God he hadn't answered every prayer I've ever asked. You know how many lessons I'd have failed to learn? I might have got out of the principal's office a lot, but I'd never be the man I was today. God spares some. And for the ones that he don't, he has a purpose. And it's, he's, we have to realize that he is so big and so vast that his purpose is so great. God often, we said this last week, God often loves to just give you the vision of the end. Just to comfort you. Hey, man, you're going to be the prince of Egypt. Man, God, that's so great. That's so great. But he didn't tell him about his brothers betraying him, throwing him in there into the slave uh, you know, he didn't tell him all that part where he gets to, hey, you're going to be accused of rape, thrown in prison for a few years. They're going to kind of forget about you and then remember you again. And Yeah, they don't tell you that part. They just tell you the end. You know, remember uh, Peter getting upset because of John? Hey, well, he, he kind of, he hints to how Peter's going to die, you know, and, John's, and Peter says, what about John? He's like, dude, don't worry about John, <laughs> right? Can you imagine if he said, well, John's going to live. There you go, Peter. Oh, man, God's big. He's big. What's it matter? Focus on you, right? It starts this way. It starts by believing and holding fast to the things that we know are true, right? When I, when I, uh, let me, this is the last thing here, because I think I deal with this a lot personally. Um, when I come into moments where I'm angry or upset at, at even the Lord, right, and I have these conversations with the Lord in my head about literally how angry I am at him. And I will say things like, God, I'm so angry at you. I can't believe you. I mean, come on, God. What do you want me to do here? Like, I, I've done, you know, and, and God will all the time reason with me. And I don't mean like reason with me in the sense like he just doesn't yell at me. He'll, he'll talk me through the scriptures. Yeah but, yeah, but if I don't want it, do you believe that, that it's still good? 
well, obviously not God. And this is the conversation that takes it's literally like this, like obviously not God, because if it's not what you wanted, you are a creator of all things. You know what's best, God. You already see the future before I can see it, God. So I do know that your decisions are better based, obviously, than mine, because my I have a limited view, right? I understand this, right? Isn't it crazy when you start talking to God in prayer and you just like, this is what I get. This is my frustration with God at times that I just want to go, God, just let me win one, right? Just let me win once, right? You're right. I'm acting like a child, okay? But that's how big God is. That's how big God is. God can have a rational conversation with your disbelief. God can have a rational conversation with your disagreement. You don't have to even like some of the things that God does, but he's still God, and he's still on the throne. And you know what that makes it? That makes you wrong and him right, no matter what. And, and because you're standing firm on the truth of who God is, you know how you can reconcile that? God is right, and I am better for it. You believe it because you know him. You know he's for you. You know he loves you. You know he cares about you. He's not beating you down with words in prayer. I'm just telling you about my own personal life here. How I reconcile my conversations with the Lord. I know he's not hating on me or, or, or being disgruntled towards me. No, he's trying to make me see the good in what he's doing. Because it is good. Because everything he does is good. It also, what does it end up showing me? How vain I can be or how selfish I am at times or how prideful or how sometimes I just want to be right or I want my own way. You know why I can come to that conclusion? You know why I can be honest about that? Because there is one truth that I have stood on, and it's the same truth that Paul stood on, that God is big, and God is good, and God is great, and he is vast, and he is deep, and he can do all things because he created all things, and he is in all places. That's why I can have a rational conversation with God. That's why I can walk away with God, even in disagreement, going, he's right and he is good, which means I'm wrong and I need to deal with some things. And it makes me be honest with myself. That truth holds me on the path. It, it's like a blocker. It doesn't, you know, like when you take your kids bowling, you got the blocker. They can never hit the gutter. It's cheating. But, but the truth of God acts like those guards. And I end up staying on the path, not because I don't wander, but because the truth of God holds me in. Amen? We all need that. And this is what Paul is saying to the Colossians. Build up that guard so that it's hard to stay on the narrow road. I'm going to tell you, I have walked with so many people on the narrow road that are no longer on the road. And the only reason, they walked it at one time, but they never accepted the truth of who God is or how great God is or how good God is. And because of that, those guards that block me from walking off at times are not there for them. If I was to ask them how big their God is, their God is unreliable. Their God is selfish. Their God is human, just like them. And that's why they're no longer in the faith. How do you view God? Let's worship. Father, I just pray this morning that we would see you as you are, good, true, perfect, loving and kind, caring, king of kings and lord of lords, and still in control. And when we do hit those bumpers and those guards, Lord, help us to get on our feet, help us to walk. And steady our feet, Father. Because you know this wind, this world, it can blow us down. Thank you, Father, that you always hang on tight.
Jesus, you are our anchor. Even when the world is chaotic, Father, you steady us. Lord, I, I pray right now for anybody who is feeling chaotic, who is feeling a bit crazy, who is feeling like this world is weighing them down. Father, I pray for peace right now. Reveal yourself to them, Father, so they can be reminded who they are in Christ. Remind me, Father. Show us this morning, Lord.
this morning, God. This is your morning. Lord, we have worshipped you and we have praised you and we have spoken your word. The work is now yours, God. You said, how could they know unless someone preaches? Well, we have both preached and praised God. And they know. Lord, like Jesus said to his disciples, it is their time to go now and be in the world. But I pray for these, not for the world, that through them you may do mighty things, that they may heal the sick and heal the lame. Lord, that they may bring sight to those who cannot see and they bring, bring sound to those who cannot hear, God. May they give them the picker's axe, Lord, that they may break stony hearts and once more open up the flame of your power inside another human being, God. Let your Holy Spirit reign over them this week and protect them, God, and cover them in all that you are, God, in Jesus' name. And everyone says amen. Amen. God is good. Amen. You are dismissed this morning. Love on somebody, will you?